0: Let's bow our heads and pray, Heavenly Father, we can never thank you enough for giving us your word. And we can never thank you enough for the fact that in this place, in this country, we are so free to hear from it, to search it out, that we can go and find so many resources. Lord, I pray that we would not be deaf or blind to what we hear and see, but that it would make real changes in our lives through your Holy Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text for this week is Ephesians 4, verses 8 to 10. If you could please turn there now. At first glance, the inclusion of this section looks a little bit odd, because, after all, Paul has just introduced the topic of individual gifts. Why on earth has he suddenly dashed off into this little section in brackets to talk about Christ's ascent and descent? It's quite hard to understand. However, I hope by now you won't be surprised to find that on more careful examination there's both important and life-giving knowledge in this section. It is perfectly related to the matter of gifts. Let's read then Ephesians 4, 8-10. to But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean but that he first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. The word therefore at the beginning of verse 8 is a very clear message that what's coming next is directly connected to the subject at hand, so we'd better pay attention. The translation I've used has the words He says next. Your translation might say It says instead, which apparently is grammatically preferable because it sort of makes more sense in the light of the Old Testament scripture that follows. I suppose it could be reasonably argued though that since all scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit that it isn't really respectful to assign its message and therefore its authority to a faceless it. Although that might be grammatically correct. Maybe he isn't such a bad idea after all. It's good to be reminded the Bible is not just another book amongst millions of others, but it is God's own words about His purposes revealed to us to help us to understand Him and know what we should be doing to please Him. So basically, Paul is just introducing his proof scripture, like any normal preacher today. The quoted text comes originally from, from Psalm 68:18, but there are a few differences, as you'll see from this this comp- comparison here. And the, the most notable one is about, uh, on one hand, giving gifts, and on the other hand, receiving them. Now, there have been a great many attempts by very clever people to explain these differences, and it can't be said that any one of them could definitely be said to have solved the riddle. So I'm, I'm not going to go and try to add to that debate. I think that the comparison is clear, though. The actions described in our text today are consistent with what we know of the ascended Jesus. Did he ascend? Well, yes. Did he consequently take authority over humans held captive by Satan? Yes. Did he subsequently give gifts to men? Yes. Is the sport of paraphrasing scripture to help understand it a new one? Well, apparently not. A study of Psalm 68 reveals themes of God's triumph over his enemies and many examples of God's gifts to people. And consequently, it is regarded as a song of victory. In fact, one of the suggestions around resolving the difference between the giving and receiving of gifts is that Paul is merely summarizing the whole of the song. And given from what you'll find there if you have a look at it, it doesn't seem like such an unreasonable idea. When we understand the parallels and apply them to the New Testament story of Jesus' victory over Satan and thus his gracious provision of both salvation and spiritual gifts, it seems to be a perfect fit. If we ask why Paul might want to quote from what we call the Old Testament, well, let's remember that we do the same thing today. We believe that God has written the Bible as an authoritative handbook. And because he wrote it, we can absolutely trust what it says. If we heard the same thing from just Johnny on the street, well, we know that we can't necessarily believe them, but we can definitely trust God. It wasn't any different in those days. Paul wanted to make the basis for his claims impeccable, and so he turns to Scripture, just like we do today. Let's try to remember the historical context of the time too. You know, wars weren't quite so civilised in those days and they also weren't conducted over the great distances we see today. So, for both Jews and Gentiles hearing the scripture, it contained some very familiar pictures. Well, you see, those blokes over in Palmy, they were getting a bit uppity. So we put an army together and we went to sort them out. We smashed them, bro! Because the king of Banguanganui had spent some big shekels on the war, and he wanted them back, and just because we could, we took all their good stuff, and their wives, and their children, and their livestock, and we brought them back to Wanganui in triumph. Victory! Yay! Then we had a giant knees up, and because the king was so pleased, and so wealthy from all of Palmy's stuff, he handed some of it around. Everyone, except the Palmyites were very happy. That's what happened in those days, and so that was Paul's helpful sermon illustration. By quoting this passage from Psalms, he's doing a great deal more than reminding his audience of old battles. He is using that picture and authority to show what Christ has done in the spiritual battle against Satan. Now there are three aspects to this. Obviously, he ascended, he led captivity captive, and he gave gifts to men. What can we learn from these? We're only going to look at the first two today because I think we've already pretty adequately covered the matter of gifts. Well, first of all, Christ's ascension. Now, just so that we're clear about what we're talking about, I'm going to run through the big picture events in Christ's life uh, while he was here on earth so that we can see where this, this business of the ascension fits. Well, as the Son of God, Jesus has existed eternally as an equal partner of the Trinity, and that means that he possesses all of the attributes of deity. The Father created all things through him, and they continue to exist because he sustains them. Following mankind's sin and fall, he voluntarily agreed to humble himself and come to earth to live a fully human life. He did this in order to glorify God by accomplishing the Father's will on earth which included the redemption of mankind. He accomplished this redemption through his sacrificial death on the cross. Following his death he was buried, but he only stayed in the tomb for three days. He bodily rose from there, thus defeating death and confirming his messiahship. For forty days afterwards he was seen at various times by his followers in his perfect resurrected body. At the end of that time, he visibly ascended into heaven, where he will remain until the proper moment to return to earth again in glory, to end human existence as we know it, to judge sin and begin things anew. We can paraphrase this. Jesus is God. He came to earth as a man. He died on a cross. He rose from the tomb and stayed on earth for a further 40 days. And then he ascended. And that word literally means to go up to heaven. He will stay there until it's time to bring things to a close on earth. But he's not having a holiday there. He remains intimately involved in all of creation. So now that we know how that all fits together, let's talk a bit about what that ascension represents. As I've just mentioned, Jesus isn't resting on his laurels whilst awaiting his return to earth. The ascension marks the beginning of Christ's continual intercession for all believers at the right hand of God. Although he's not physically present among us today, he isn't at all unconcerned or less active on our behalf. Christians enjoy peace and hope and security because Christ is our advocate with the Father. That's just amazing when you think about it. Because our sin hasn't stopped being detestable to God by even the tiniest bit. But when we sin, Jesus puts up his hand there in heaven and he says, Father, forgive them for they are covered by my blood. I find that a very humbling image. It is as the the exalted Lord that Jesus sent or poured out the Holy Spirit upon his church with his gifts for believers. God's plan makes sure that we are never left to struggle alone. Jesus' physical presence has been replaced by the presence of the Holy Spirit. Since Pentecost, Jesus' followers now enjoy the presence of the Spirit and the operation of the Spirit's gifts through them as the church pursues the work that Christ ordered, which is to go and spread the gospel everywhere. Next, as a result of his ascension, Jesus exercises his heavenly reign at the right hand of the Father as Lord of the church. And that reign will last until his second coming, when he will return to earth as the reigning Messiah, announced as King of kings and Lord of lords. Finally, the ascension of Christ is the promise of his second coming. In scripture we read, This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Jesus will return to earth literally and physically in bodily form just as he ascended into heaven. The ascension is a very, very important event because it reminds us that it cost God a great deal to rescue us. And we should not forget that cost. Last week I mentioned that I'd been visiting my brothers in Australia. The one who lives there, Michael, went to very great lengths to make sure that we had a fantastic time together. I'm grateful to him, so I'm going to send him a little thank you gift in the post. Of course, New Zealand Post isn't going to do that for free, are they? There's always a cost. To move things. And it's in proportion to the size of the thing being moved. So what do you think it may have cost to move a whole history and planet worth of human sin? One sin, one sin is detestable to God. Now I looked up that word detestable in the dictionary. It said that it means being or deserving to be abhorred or detested abominable, odious. Now these are very strong words. God doesn't just find sin to be an inconvenience, something that you don't like the smell of but can just about ignore. He finds it impossible to tolerate. It is entirely opposite to everything in his being and everything that he stands for. On that basis, let me ask you again, what do you think it may have cost God to deal with a whole world full of sin? The answer, of course, is that it must be an unimaginably great amount. If I, if I held out these two knives to you and told you that this one, although it's very shiny, came from Countdown as a result of spending about $100,000 on groceries. <laughs> and this one is a specialised preparation knife that's made from high carbon steel and, well, it actually cost quite a bit more. Not more than 100000 by the way. And you could have either one as a gift. No strings attached. Well, which one would you choose? I suspect, the expensive one. However, if that was the case, would you leave it outside in the weather or use it to cut steel cables or continue to use the blunt one that you got 45 years ago when you were first married? Of course not. It doesn't make sense. But that's exactly what we often do with God's factually priceless gifts, both of salvation and spiritual gifts. Why would we do that? I know it's so obvious and it's easy to talk about here, but maybe not so easy to do when the boss has just asked you to rework your sales projection for the fifth time, or you're trying to share the gospel with your 150 kilo tattooed neighbour, that's not really an excuse, is it? We didn't get the cheap knife. We must use it properly and look after it. Now I can't say for you how you are making the best use of the gifts you have been given, but the very cost of the ascension should challenge and provoke us to do the very best we can. We have every reason possible to want to love, serve, and obey God. Now we can speak about this match of leading captivity captive. Most of us don't truly understand the crushing pain of being held prisoner. We are very used to making our own decisions. We will do this or that, or we will go here or there when we ought to. But captivity takes those choices away from us. We don't like that idea. It frightens us. And we might even hotly say it infringes our human rights. I'm a free man in a free country, you might say. And yet we have all been spiritual captives. We have no choice in the matter because of sin. Without Jesus to release us, that is how we will stay. And that is how we will die. And that is when we will receive the prisoner's punishment. And at that point, sadly, there is no other option. However, praise God, when Jesus ascended, it meant that he had accomplished what he said he would do and what was prophesied so long ago in the book of Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the broken-hearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Jesus did all those things. Hallelujah and Amen. We've been talking about work being done, about cost, and about the various parts of Jesus' life here on earth. But what did he actually do? What are those parts and how are they significant? I think it's appropriate then to spend a little time now on the theological topic of the atonement. Now, there may be some of you thinking, here he goes again. Long words. Maybe I'll think about my dog. Please don't. Please. These things are important. If we are to understand our Lord better and thus love and serve Him better, then we need to apply ourselves to His Word. It isn't always easy, but there is great profit in it. We only have to look at the numerous strong advices given around the topic of knowledge in the book of Proverbs to appreciate the wisdom of collecting it and, sadly, the foolishness of avoiding it. Some of these words are difficult, but they're only that way because they have a very specific job to do. They have to be exact. And although it's true that they can be explained in other ways, it generally means one of those very long and clumsy sentences that are hard to use when we're just talking or in a sermon. Atonement sounds like one of those words that's hard to understand, but actually it's very easy. If I asked you what this means, an instantaneous legal act of God in which he firstly thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us and secondly declares us to be righteous in his sight, do you know what I was talking about? Well, it's the full definition of the term justification. Or, who here knows the other easy way of remembering what justification means? Just as if. Just as if. It means that God sees us just as if we hadn't sinned. The word reveals its meaning. Just as if. Justification. It's easy. Handily, atonement is the same. We can break it down in the same way to say at one mint, The atonement is the reconciling work initiated by God and done through Christ to restore the originally intended harmonious relationship of unity between God and mankind. Jesus made us at one with God again, the way that we were supposed to be from the beginning. This atoning work first became necessary through Adam's sin, and then continuously because humanity carried on sinning. We've already spoken about how God feels about sin. And since he is holy, that sin condemned all humans to eternal separation from him. When the Lord chose Israel to be his people, he dealt with that dividing action of sin by putting in place a means of reconciliation through Old Testament covenant law. This came with the sacrificial system where the death or blood of an animal was accepted by God as a substitute for the death that the sinner deserved. The law required that the sacrificial victims must be free from defect and buying them always involved some cost to the sinner. But an animal did not automatically make people right with God in some sort of simple or mechanical way. The separation between God and men was a dynamic and a personal matter. God, for his part, personally gave the means of the atonement in the sacrificial system. Men and women, for their part personally, were expected to recognize the seriousness of their sin. And they must also identify themselves personally with the victim that dies. In Leviticus we read, Then he shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. So it wasn't a question of just handing over the animal that was killed and you went away. You had to stand there. You had to to put your hand on its head while it was killed. Okay, that was real in the Old Testament, God himself brought about atonement by graciously providing the appointed sacrifices. The priest represented him in the atonement ritual, and the sinner received the benefits of being reconciled to God in forgiveness and harmony, Although Old Testament believers were truly forgiven and received genuine atonement through animal sacrifice, the New Testament clearly states that during the Old Testament period, God's justice was not served. Read in Hebrews, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. You might say that while the practical part of the problem was solved, the legal problem remained. The debt was still there. Something better had to replace the system, and this came through the work of Jesus on earth. A new covenant that was prophesied in Jeremiah 31. And this, of course, was a prophecy of the Messiah's coming and how different the resulting relationship would be between humans and God. You know, one of the things we need to take on board about the atonement is that God didn't actually need to do any of these things. We read in 2 Peter about how harshly he dealt with sinful angels. He cast them into hell. We could ask then, Why wouldn't Sovereign God do the same for humans in perfect justice? However, he chose to act out of love to restore our fellowship with him through the death of Jesus on the cross. And it had to be Jesus. Nothing created was perfect enough for the job. And that job had two parts. Firstly, there was his obedience for us in which he obeyed the requirements of the law in our place. And was perfectly obedient to the will of God the Father as our representative. And secondly, there were Christ's sufferings for us in which He took the penalty due for our sins and as a result died for them. Now we need to understand that the biggest consequence of what Jesus did actually affects the Father and not us. Jesus obeyed the Father in our place and perfectly met the demands of the law. Then he suffered in our place, receiving on himself the penalty that God the Father should have visited on us. And theologians will say in both cases, the atonement is viewed as objective. It was done to achieve something that could be measured with the Father. There was an offence against him, and a debt that had to be paid. Okay? those things were there, they could be measured. And both of them were objectively discharged. They were taken away by Jesus. God was restoring a balance for his own purposes and glory. Then there is a secondary subjective consequence for us. Subjective just means basically that it's about feelings, not about numbers. Because the balance was objectively restored, we can now subjectively have a proper relationship with God. It includes the full range of emotions that God created us with. We can respond to him and perceive how he responds to us. But that would never have been possible without that big objective bit. What did Jesus actually do to achieve that atonement? Unfortunately, it is centered on suffering. That is what we ought to endure for offending God. There are a few parts to this. First of all, he suffered for his whole life. In a very broad sense, the penalty Christ bore in paying for our sins was suffering in both his body and his soul throughout his life. Despite his most royal status, he wasn't born to a wealthy family that knew no lack and having a party lifestyle before just, you know, sneaking off to die on the cross at the last moment. It wasn't like that. Scripture speaks of God being pleased to bruise Jesus, to put him to grief. He was a man who carried our sorrows, despised and rejected by men. Jesus bore anew in full the physical curse of sin. He also knew deep spiritual suffering. For example, enduring Satan's temptation in the wilderness and being so overwhelmed by the trial of crucifixion that he literally sweated blood. Jesus did not have an easy life. And that was because of us. Secondly, he endured the pain of the cross. It was especially on that cross that Jesus' sufferings for us reached their climax because it was there that he took the full penalty for our sin and died in our place. And we can learn from Scripture that there are four different aspects to that pain that Jesus experienced there. Well, firstly, there was physical pain and death. Death by crucifixion was one of the most horrible forms of execution that was ever devised by man. A person who was crucified was essentially forced to inflict upon themselves a very slow death by suffocation. You're hanging there with your arms outstretched and fastened by nails to the cross. Okay, Now you're supporting most of your weight on your arms. Because of that, Your chest cavity is pulled back and out like this, which makes it very hard to breathe out. You can't draw a fresh breath. So, when your longing for oxygen becomes unbearable, you're going to push up with your feet against the nail that's put through your ankles. And you can draw a difficult breath. You can just about fend off suffocation but it's painful. Your back, which has been ripped open by flogging, is scraping against the cross every time you do that. One first century writer speaks of a crucified man drawing the breath of life amid long drawn-out agony. And sometimes, you do that for days. Nearly suffocating but not quite dying. And that's why the executioners would sometimes break the legs of a criminal so that death would come quickly. This is horrible. Are we seeing at the depth of God's offense over sin where he would require such awful punishment for his own son as the only adequate payment? Secondly, Jesus had to bear the pain of bearing sin. Now, that physical agony of the cross was bad enough, but imagine the psychological pain of bearing the guilt for our sin. We all know how terrible we feel when we have sinned. Guilt weighs very heavily on our hearts, and there is that terrible sense of separation from God and everything that is right. And we feel this more and more as we grow more and more like Christ through the process of sanctification. Now just think about that feeling when we consider that we are only growing towards Jesus' standard of perfect holiness. He was God. He hated sin with his entire being. Just the thought of it was opposite to everything in his character. Yet in obedience to the Father and out of love for us, Jesus took on himself all the sins of those who would someday be saved. Plus all the sins that had already been committed. Taking on himself all the evil against which his soul rebelled must have created deep revulsion in the center of his being. All that he hated most deeply was being poured out fully upon him. In Isaiah we read, The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. There are a number of verses like this, and they tell us that it was God the Father who put our sins on Christ. We understand how Adam's sin belongs to us, and here I'm going to use another specific term, imputed, which means that God thinks and causes something to belong to someone else. Adam's sins were imputed to us, and so also God imputed our sins to Christ. That is, he thought of them as belonging to Christ. Now, if I think that you're ugly, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're ugly. But God holds the ultimate decisions about what is true and untrue in the universe. So if God thinks of our sins as belonging to Christ, then in fact they actually do. I want to be very clear here that this does not mean in any way that Christ was an, at all sinful, but rather that our guilt, and thus our need for punishment, was laid upon him. That, friends, is a very uncomfortable idea. How could Jesus, who had never himself sinned, take the blame for all of our sin? even in the face of its absolute repulsiveness to him. I am sure that we cannot even begin to understand the suffering that this must have caused him. You might say that this isn't fair, and by our standards it definitely isn't. However, Christ did this work voluntarily, and if God, who is the ultimate determination of all standards, decided that this was the only way to satisfy the demands of his own righteousness and justice, then who are we to question it? Thirdly, Jesus suffered by being abandoned. He suffered alone. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he asked Peter, James and John to remain here and watch. I don't think that that was a command. I think it was a man who was pleading, who was desperate for support in a time when he had so much need. But as soon as Jesus was arrested, all his disciples forsook him and fled. He cried out and was rejected. We can understand how painful that must have been. After all, we have generally all experienced something like this. Despite his love for them, they all abandoned him. That's bad enough. But once again there was a far worse abandonment at the spiritual level. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus cries out on the cross. Hanging there, taking our enormous burden of sins. And God, who is of purer eyes than to behold evil, turns his face away. The closest that Jesus had known throughout his earthly life was smashed, and he was totally alone. And as terrible as those sufferings have been, the very worst was yet to come, because Jesus also suffered by bearing the wrath of God. Jesus didn't just take up our sins like they were packed in a backpack that he could take off at some future date and put aside. Because every single sin requires punishment. In taking on the burden of our sin, Jesus also had to endure the pain of God pouring out his wrath in vengeance upon that sin. There is no instrument that has ever been devised by man that could match the fury and power of God the Father, the mighty creator, Lord of the universe, dealing out on Jesus the full measure of his deep hatred of sin and his need for vengeance against it, which had been stored up against all of man's continual disobedience. We read in Romans 3 that God considered Christ as a propitiation. And that means a sacrifice that bears God's wrath to the end and in so doing changes God's wrath towards us into favour. Western society now claims that it has largely set Christianity aside. However, this is substantially untrue at the moral level because a great deal of our laws and what we consider to be mature emotional responses are actually based on scriptural principles. We are very used to the idea that the right thing to do when somebody offends you is to make amends, to forgive and forget, yes? And so we might struggle to understand the perfection and rigidity of God's righteousness and holiness. It means that there is an eternal, unchangeable requirement in the holiness and justice of God that sin must be paid for. God has not forgiven or forgotten a single sin committed against Him in all of history, but merely stored up His righteous anger against them. That must have been an enormous tension that at the cross was unleashed against God's own son. A moment's reflection shows that this makes nonsense of any idea that Jesus could have been anything other than God. There is just... No way that any created thing could have been the propitiation in those circumstances. That is why Jesus, and only Jesus, is the single and only way of reconciliation with God. Thankfully, the story of the cross doesn't end with blood and wrath. After enduring this enormous agony for many hours, at last... Jesus knew that his suffering was nearly at an end. He had borne all the wrath of the Father against our sins. And he knew that the only thing that remained was to yield up his spirit to his heavenly Father and die. With a shout of victory, Jesus cried out, It is finished! And then with a loud voice, he once more cried out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he voluntarily gave up the life that no one could take from him. And he died. As Isaiah had predicted, he poured out his soul to death and bore the sins of many. That's us. God the Father saw the fruit of the travail of his soul and was satisfied. This is the message of the atonement. Whilst one we were convicted and cursed, through Jesus we are set free. And This is why Paul wrote here in Ephesians that he led captivity captive. Thanks be to God. The atonement is such an indescribably gracious and loving act by our Lord. It came at such a high price that we ought both to give Him continuous thanks and praise and physically respond with a life that demonstrates repentance and obedience to His will. Without atonement, salvation is impossible. Its complete effectiveness means that humans aren't just eternally absolved from sin, but we are delivered from it, spotlessly white. Its eternal nature guarantees security, hope, and meaning to all of life. The absolution and deliverance removes the fear of God that comes with sinfulness and makes possible the reality of an open and bold relationship with Him as we've just read in Ephesians. In the context of today's passage, it reminds us that our gifts came at a cost and that they were distributed specifically and personally by the only one with the power and the authority to do so, Jesus. What will we do with this knowledge, I wonder? It feels very awkward at this point to move now to the last two verses of the passage because we've already got such a lot to think about. But we must do so because these verses are part and parcel of our study today. Paul clearly didn't want to leave the matter of ascension open to misinterpretation. I'm going to read that bit again. Now this, he ascended. What does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended was also the one who ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. Now there are all manner of strange ideas about who Jesus was and many of them deny his being God at all. And some of these folk, such as the Gnostics, They were already starting to become a problem in the first century. And who knows, they might already have been preaching their heresy as Paul was writing this. And this is why he was at pains to include this apparently obvious comment that if Jesus has ascended, it must be back to his starting point. He was indisputably God come down to earth and then returning home to his normal powers and place of dwelling. It's becoming less and less common these days, but we may still come across people talking about a seal of quality. In days long past, letters were closed up and marked with a wax seal that had a special imprint proving who the sender was, and that was often from a ring that somebody like a king or somebody important would wear, and they'd have this ring on their finger with a special seal, and they'd use that on the wax, on the letter, to make sure that if you got that letter, you knew that that was from the king. Because that ring stayed on his finger. And more recently, marketing people have seen the possibilities in this and they've encouraged us to try to connect the picture of a seal with a guarantee of quality. I believe that Paul's noting of both Christ's ascension and descent can be seen just like a seal of quality. It proves that Jesus is indisputably the real deal. He is the Son of God. He came down from heaven. He had the power to accomplish what he said he would. He did it all and then returned to his rightful home. No other argument or explanation is possible. Another possible line of error that Paul addresses is one of reach. To imagine that while Christ might have power and be effective in heaven, well, on earth things are different. You know, He hasn't quite made it everywhere. However, Paul's language doesn't leave a smidgen of area out. It includes both the lower parts of the earth and far above the heavens. Jesus has been to the farthest reaches of anywhere imaginable, that is physical, and in doing so he has been to all of the places in between. There is no part of creation he does not know, no part where he is not God, and no part that his salvation has not reached. If we look at some of the other examples of this type of language, we see that it includes association with some very out of the way spots, like the belly of Jonah's fish, the womb of a woman, death, and even hell. Jesus is in every place that we might need him. What a tremendous hope and confidence this knowledge brings for believers. Jesus has been everywhere. In fact, we read that He hasn't just visited them, but He has actually filled all things. He is our Savior and our advocate ubiquitously. And that means that He is in the same amount everywhere. There is absolutely no place that we might call for help and have no reply, or there was no ability for reply. Isn't that wonderful? There's a warning too. There's no place where the sinner can hide. But more gloriously, there is no place that the sinner cannot be rescued from either where the atonement is not effective. Friends, I hope that the enormity of Jesus' suffering on our behalf has sunk in. We may have a general understanding in our minds that yes, Jesus died for our sins and that in essence is the message of the atonement but we often don't think about it much more deeply. Today, we've had to confront the reality of the cost of that work. It was very serious, and it was very great. And so, too, ought to be our response. When Paul encourages us to use our gifts, it isn't merely at the level of a nice idea. It is an honor and a privilege to give a small service to one who has given us so very, very much. Let us pray. Father, it's tremendously humbling to think about what Jesus has done for us. Lord, we were so undeserving. How great is your love that you would do all this for us, that you would rescue us when we had offended you so much. Lord, I just can't, I just cannot understand it. And yet you did it. And We must thank you, Lord, not just with our mouths, but with our actions. Father, as we leave here, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be active in us, provoking us to remember these matters and provoking us to obedience, Lord. Obedience that is lived out in love. Thank you for that. Thank you. In Jesus' name, Amen.